I want to invite you to remain standing, worship through music, one voice in unison, worshiping one God. That is an amazing sound on Sunday morning. I want you to remain standing for the public reading of Scripture. We believe at Sun River that when God speaks, He speaks through His Word, and when He speaks, we stand in awe and reverence. We are going through the book, uh, or the uh, chapter in John, John 15, and we've accumulated, we're covering the whole book, the first Sunday we read the whole chapter, not the whole book, the whole chapter, and today we're covering verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read publicly as you stand, verses 1 through 8, and then when we get to 9, you will see on the screen, we are going to do corporate read and repeat almost like wedding vows. I want you to hear the voice and words of God, and then I want you to repeat them, verses 9, 10, and 11, and the words that you repeat will be on the screen. John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Will you join me in prayer? Fathers, we worship you as we worship your holy name. Be glorified by the public reading of your word. May you be blessed. And may the words that you speak to us from scriptures seep deep into our hearts and minds and transform us to be obedient to you. May the things that you say to us bring joy that is full and complete. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As you came in, you were given notes, and I want to encourage you, if you have your own Bibles, to pull them out and turn to John chapter 15. I think it is imperative as a follower of Jesus Christ that you see these words with your own eyes that you read them, and that you personally, as we move through John chapter 15, allow God's Spirit to move and reveal areas in your heart where you need to grow in your love for Jesus. As we've been moving through John 15, you've heard me say this a couple of times, that in order to understand this story that Jesus is saying, you need to understand the Old Testament. He is pulling a visual image 
from the Old Testament and speaking truth to his disciples in preparation for his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so, to build on this foundation, I, I want to point out two imperative principles in regards to biblical interpretation, a theological term called hermeneutics. I'm going to try and make this as simple as possible. It's just going to take me a second, but I want to frame these two important principles before we go to scripture. Because what happens if we don't is we read these words, and I know in life groups this question has popped up. I know there's been some conversation, and I've wrestled with this in many different uh, relationships that I've discipled or counseled. These words can be very easily misunderstood. So we have to understand the Old Testament, and we have to understand biblical interpretation, the author's intent. Some would say, and I agree, dual intent, because we know that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, all of scripture. That's 2 Timothy. And and Peter tells us that, that man was led by the Spirit to reveal God's truth. Dual intent. God has an intent, and it doesn't disconnect from man's human intent in writing. They're both there. I think this is important to understand. Again, I'm going to try and make this as simple as I possibly can. Currently, I'm uh, pursuing another graduate degree, trying to deepen my understanding, specifically in New Testament ecclesiology, the study of the church, with the focus on theology and Greek and Hebrew, intermediate, not advanced. I've done the basic stuff. I'm going to try and take it a little bit deeper. This class that I'm currently in, taught by William... Varner, Dr. William Varner, talks about her, he's talking about hermeneutics and how the prophets and the apostles used interpretation of scripture to write their inspired words. It's fascinating for me, probably not for you. That's beside the point. But I want you to listen to these words from Abner Chu in his book, Hermeneutics and the Biblical Writers, because this is very important. If we are off in the interpretation, the application will be off. We want to be a people who pursue God's authoritative word accurately. He says this, evangelicals have rightly stressed the biblical hermeneutics Ultimately, these hermeneutics, this interpretation comes from the Bible. God sets the rules for his word. And this needs to be understood and not compromised. However, in the process, he says, of formulating our hermeneutic in scripture, we run into some significant problems. It begins with the question on how our, quote, Christian hermeneutic precisely operates. We may know the principles and convictions from Scripture, but how does that apply or play out when we approach Scripture? We can be taught to put together all the word studies, historical background, the grammatical work, but how does that actually produce the author's intent and meaning? This is very important. Moreover, how do we connect with our interpretation in regards to theology, which oftentimes is void, he says, in our hermeneutic? How do we know whether the author intended a certain theological idea or not? What should we learn from the stories of Scripture, he says. Is there a point to David and Goliath that we should slay our own giants? Certainly not. And if not, what is the real idea of the text? And how do we know? We encounter a similar conundrum 
when we ask how to preach or teach Christ from the Old Testament. Should we read Christ into every single text, even if he is not in view in the original context? Once again, what is the bridge between what Scripture says and biblical theology that it conveys? These questions show we not only seek and need to seek to learn from Scripture hermeneutical principles, but also, he says, hermeneutical practice. How do we apply these principles to our study of Scripture? I know there was a lot there, but but let me try to illustrate this with the second point a point that I call or began to call a theological paradigm. A theological paradigm. A paradigm is a way of looking at the world, similar to a worldview. You and I all have paradigms that tell us how we interpret our experiences. We are Western. The Bible was written by Eastern writers who think Eastern. First century culture, a first century culture mindset. I've talked a little bit about this in the past. We're Western. We think Western. This isn't right or wrong. It's different. It's not about sin or not sin. We all have paradigms. We use them every single day. Let me give some illustrations. The color green does not mean go. The color red does not mean stop. But in a driving paradigm, we all know what those two colors mean. If we don't follow those colors, bad things happen. We all have perspectives. We probably all have a prayer paradigm as well. You pray before you eat. It's a prayer, I guess, paradigm. The Bible doesn't say pray before you eat. More explicitly, the Bible says, after you've eaten and gotten your fill, give thanks to the Lord. Now, high schoolers, junior hires, don't go home and before dinner go, Andy said, we don't have to pray. And dads, when you're shopping for the groceries, just pre-bless the food. That'll take care of the issue. So when the food is hot, you can just dig right in, right? Those are all parts of our paradigm. On a side note, prayer is a value at Sun River Church. Before COVID, you probably remember, right after I got the position of lead pastor, we set up a prayer tour to build a foundation and a value of prayer here at Sun River Church. And I say that because it's time for us to get back to that. It's time for us to build into the, the, the structure and the DNA of Sun River Church prayer. It is convicting when I read authors like, like, or former men of the faith, like Arthur Pink. Sounded too much like author, and so I was getting tongue-tied. Says that a church that doesn't pray is anemic church. And so fundamentally, we are going to build this back into, not just a few times during a Sunday corporate gathering, We're going to shift from a a prayer paradigm back into DNA of Sun River Church. Our first corporate worship through prayer will be November 13th in the evening, Sunday evening from 5.30 to 7.30. I just want you to, there'll be more information to come, but I just want you to process, I put that in your mind so you begin to process prayer as a foundation of what we do. A theological paradigm is important in understanding the context of the verses we're going to look at. Verses that tell us that when it comes to obeying God and keeping his commands, we need to make sure that our view, our paradigm, doesn't shift us away from what is being stated by the author's intent. Not our feelings or emotions. 
Because once we start talking about obeying God, all of us begin to feel the pressure of not being able to do that. And our paradigm, our theological paradigms can push us to places that aren't true. Let me give you, again, a couple of examples of this. The Bible says that Jesus died to forgive us. This is true. To forgive us of our sins. That his death took the power of sin and the condemnation of the law away from us. This is also true. Therefore, once we have prayed the sinner's prayer, we can go off and live life however we want or however it pleases us. This is not biblical and not true, but an inaccurate paradigm, perspective could lead us to that fallacy. Or the New Testament tells us that we need to obey God, that we need to do as he commands. This is true. It says that we should have a holy and righteous life, that we should be holy and righteous people. This is also true. So a fallible paradigm can then lead us to believe, therefore, we should only, we should not only try to live a sinless life, but we actually can do so. That is not true. First John makes that really clear. Therefore, since, therefore, if we sin, we may not be true Christians, which is also not true. I hope these illustrations begin to, to give examples of how we can get off if we're not seeking the original intent, God's intent, and the inspiration of the Spirit as it led men to write these words. See, the problem with both of these two inaccurate views, I've already said, is the paradigm. They both view our faith as a set of rules. The only way we have is the only the way we, we need to think or one can think is you have to follow them. Both of these cases, it's about following rules. Again, the paradigm in both cases leads to legalism or license, both unbiblical viewpoints. Let me be really clear about the point I'm trying to make in the introduction of today's sermon. In the Bible, the opposite of rules is not no rules. It's relationship. This is a completely different paradigm than we will naturally think, believe, and act upon. I think marriage is a classic example. One last example I will look at. Marriage, the way God intended it to be. It's supposed to be the strongest and most enduring voluntary relationship we could ever have with another person. This is why the Bible uses marriage as an illustration over and over and over again in regards to our relationship, our covenant relationship with the Lord. And I want to, on that note, congratulate Valerie and Nate Finn. They got married yesterday. A church wedding, yes, where they made their covenant vows, and we're excited for you guys Thank you for being members here. Thank you for serving in KFA and being a part and belonging with the family here. We are, again, excited for you guys and thankful to, uh, to have you members and a part of Sun River. Congratulations. Marriage is a good illustration of this covenant. Let me explain it this way. Heidi and I, when we met at age 16... She laid down all the rules that were expected for the relationship, all of them. And I pulled up my bootstraps and I started working to obey all those rules. And after seven years, bam, I qualified myself. No, that's not what happened. That's not how that relationship came together. But don't we do that with God? We got to get ourselves cleaned up so that God can accept us. Do you know what brings two people together? 
love. Love, that's how Heidi and I, we fell in love with each other. And then after we got married, I sat her down and said, okay, honey, love brought us together, but now we got to set rules so that we can keep that love. And you follow your rules and I'll follow my rules. If you break your rules, I'm gonna be mad at you. If I break my rules, I, hey, I'm only human. And so all this contract stuff starts coming out. No, that's not how it happened either. That's not what a covenant does or says. Marriage is not based on rules. However, this doesn't mean that I have the freedom to go do what I want. There are certain things you could identify as rules, but there are certain things that destroy love and destroy relationships. I think this is the biggest problem we have in marriages today that fail is we don't realize that our actions affect the love between us. We don't realize how these actions have the potential to either hurt or how our actions could help our love. There are rules in relationships, but rules aren't the focus. It is love that sets the parameters on how relationships are built. And so here comes the question that I've asked for the last three weeks. How is your personal relationship with the Lord? How was your personal time with Jesus this week? I ask this because I know it's a convicting question, but it is the heart of what Jesus is saying in John 15. I don't want you to miss this. How was your time with Jesus? Did you abide with him? Did you remain with him? Are you dwelling with him? Is your love a relationship not based on rules, but on the foundation of your love for him and his love for you. Up to this point, Jesus is making a clear, clear statement. He's commanding his disciples to abide in him. He instructs them to live in a state of dependence and reliance upon him. How is your dependence and reliance daily with Jesus? He commands them to keep his words active in their minds and their hearts. Jesus tells his disciples that when his words are dwelling and abiding and remaining in their hearts and minds, their prayers will be answered. That was verse 7. And then he goes on and says, their abiding in Christ, in him, will glorify God the Father And the result will be they will bear much fruit and show themselves to be true disciples. You see, the question has been asked, how do you find significance? How do you bear fruit? And the answer is you abide. And today the question is, how do I abide? A true follower of Jesus has one identifying mark. You're going to learn that mark today. A true follower of Jesus has one identifying mark, and this mark has, listen, an irresistible consequence. I've chosen those words specifically to illustrate the point that Jesus is making A true follower of Jesus has one identifying mark. And this mark in a believer's life has an irresistible consequence. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. We've talked about this word love, agape or agape. 
As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Here's the question. How does the Father love the Son? Jesus says, as the Father has loved me. How does the Father love Jesus? You need to know that the love of God is not limited. There's no limit to God's love. There are no flaws in God's love. The Father loves the Son, Jesus, His Son, perfectly and eternally. You and I really don't have the capacity to even fathom this because you and I are corrupt. Our love is corrupted on itself. We, we just, we're born loving ourselves. We're born into sin. This sin hinders our love. It limits our capacity to love. We're really honest. Loving other people is a lot of hard work, right? Thank you. Just stop looking at me when I say that. At times we lose patience with those that we're supposed to love. We become irritated with them. We become frustrated. Just plain weary. And so what do we do? We try to change them. We try to blame them. We try to control them through emotions, sometimes anger or avoidance or manipulation. Listen, none of these factors that are real for you and I, none of these factors in any way, shape, or form are in the Father and the Father's love for Jesus. I want you to get this because the next statement should rock your world. The next statement has the potential to make grace so irresistible for every person in this room that your heart begins to feel the grace of God, like I've talked about on the live Devo, like a diamond shining perfectly on the, on the back black drop of velvet. You hold the diamond up and it reflects the light, but you, you know, if you've looked at a diamond, you put it on that black velvet backdrop and then it just sparkles tenfold. That black velvet backdrop is your sin nature. Grace, the words that are getting ready to be spoken, is the grace of God reflecting the love of God to you. Listen, as the Father has loved me, Jesus says to true believers, so have I loved you with that same perfect, pure, untainted love. Now you may not feel that way and I may not feel that way because sin has tainted us. We may feel like we don't deserve the love, we deserve punishment. Vanquish the thought. This is how grace transforms a person's heart and life. C.S. Lewis talks about God's love in his book, Problem of Pain, when he says this, if God is love, he is, by definition, something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though he has often, has often rebuked us and condemned us, he has never regarded us with contempt. Oh, that's grace. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most unstoppable sense. End of quote. This is amazing. He offers us kind of daily experience of love and joy and grace that he himself has received from his father. His own experience, Jesus' own experience of the father is a deep and abiding love. It is not something that fades away. It is not something that is conditional. It is not something based on how good we are. We find no favor. This is what grace is. This love sustained Jesus. This love sustained us. 
Paul wrote about this love in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Listen to these words. This is the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in your inner being, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. You may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. We, we need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us to strengthen us in order that we can begin to understand what is uncomprehendable, the love of Christ and the love that he has for us. It is beyond our ability to know completely. It is abundantly far more than we could ever ask or think the unfathomable, unlimited love of Jesus for us is the heart of everything else that drives our lives. It is the foundation which the rest of the scriptures we're reading is built on. The rest of John 15 is contingent upon this love. We're going to talk about keeping the commandments of Jesus. We have to fill the weight of God's love. In his commentary on John 15, or on the book of John, D.A. Carson says this, How much, however much, God's love for us is gracious and undeserved. Continued enjoyment of that love turns at least in part, on our response to it. Christians, above all people, followers of Jesus, above anyone else, are to be known by their love for God, their love for each other, and their love for their neighbors. This is not a social movement. The social movement crept across churches in America. And then COVID exposed it because we had to shut everything down. This love is for God first. This love is for the bride of Christ second. And then it overflows and doesn't ignore people who are lost. But what happened was the church shut down. And at Sun River, it shut down. So I'm just going to be honest. And so some of our programs shut down. And we weren't able to go out and do some of the things. And we were resetting. And since we weren't able to love the lost, people thought, you know what? I'm not coming anymore because we're not able to love the lost. And I understand that. But what happened to the love inside and up that drives the whole thing? And we're going to get back to... Uh, winter shelter and some form of second Friday because we're commanded to love God, to love each other. It's just, it's just a whole lot easier to love the unknown sometimes than the known, right? But we're commanded to be the people who are loved by God, loved by Jesus, to love him, to love each other, and to love the lost, it has been said that love is the greatest apologetic, and I agree. Apologetics is defense of the faith. You may not know all the theological answers in the Bible, and you don't need to at this point. But if you have love, you have the answer to all the questions that really matter. And Jesus is saying this love of God produces the mark of a true follower of Jesus. This mark of a true follower of Jesus, verse 10. If you, tereo, 
if you, the Greek word tereo, keep, it means to attend to, to carefully take care of, and to guard. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Look at verse 10. Circle the word keep. If you carefully take care of and guard my commandments, you will, here's the word we looked at last week, you will abide, the Greek word meno. But we need to unpack here in this sentence the grammatical structure and where this word fits. We need to look at the syntax of this word meno, abide, remain, continue. There's an aorist tense, an active voice, and an imperative mood in the Greek that personify the weight and depth of what abide really means. The active voice indicates that abiding in Christ is a choice that a believer makes and they must make moment by moment, day by day, since the Christian life is a walk of faith one step at a time. This is the active voice behind the word. How was your walk with Jesus this week? The imperative mood of abide stresses that this is a command from Jesus, an absolute necessity to bear fruit. The goal is not to bear fruit. The goal is to abide. And if you don't abide, you won't bear fruit. Bear fruit carry fruit. The focus is abiding. It's an imperative mood. And then the aorist tense of abide indicates that abiding in Christ, listen, is to be the top priority of a believer in Jesus. The top priority above everything else. I could just start cherry picking all the things that I know other people do in prioritizing things before Christ. I'm not going to do that because I don't want anybody to cherry pick me because I've got issues too. But this is the word of God. We need to apply this. This, this her expositional hermeneutic needs to be applied to our lives together. Daniel Wallace in his book, Greek grammar beyond the basics states this regarding the aorist tense of the verb. He says, it's as if the author says, make this your number one priority. In thinking how you're going to make abiding your number one priority, you will feel the gravity and heightened urgency. on your shoulders. This understanding clarifies for us the believer's attitude and dependence on the Lord Jesus. This is the most important thing in our lives. Full dependence on Jesus. Every day in the vine. Again, D.A. Carson, the imagery of the vine is stretched a little when the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. But this point is crystal clear. Dependence on the vine. Constant reliance upon Jesus. He says, persistent spiritual drinking of his life is the sine qua non, which is Latin for the essential condition, a thing that is absolutely necessary for spiritual faithfulness. The identifying mark is obedience to Jesus.
the identifying mark, obedience to Jesus. Our obedience to God ought to be built on the foundation of this fact that Jesus loves us with a perfect love that he experienced from the Father. And so a true follower of Jesus has one identifying mark, obedience. Why? Because God loves us. If we get that fact wrong, if we miss this crucial point, there will be a host of other things in our lives which we will get wrong. Application will be wonky. Our paradigm will be skewed or will skew the truth. Listen, this is not to say that when we truly grasp by faith that God loves us, that everything will make sense after that. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that once you embrace the love of God that nothing will go wrong. But it is clear that if we build our lives on any other basis than God's love and his love for us, sooner or later, the useless and the hopelessness in our lives will come crashing in. We're called to an obedient love. The way we abide in Jesus is to remain in his love. And the way we remain in his love is through obedience. Jesus isn't saying, this is where the condition is. Don't read it as a condition. He isn't saying, if you want me to love you, you better obey. Thank goodness he's not saying that. He's saying, if you love me, you demonstrate it through obedience. Obedience doesn't earn love. Obedience, just like in marriage, is the evidence of love. How, listen, does the Bible speak of a person who claims to be a Christian, but is living in willful, persistent disobedience to Jesus? As simple as can be, it says you don't love Jesus. True Christians obey. All around the world, there are those who claim to follow Jesus, but but don't. Man, my heart's desire is that we would be a church marked by Christ-like character, love for him, love for each other. It is spiritual insanity to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't follow what he says. And that is a cultural norm accepted today in our world. A disciple who doesn't obey is not a disciple. Jesus makes that clear. If Jesus lives in you, you cannot help by the love of God to produce fruit the fruit of loving obedience. His love in you will cause you to love what he loves, to treat his words or to treasure his words, to obey. Not out of duty, but out of delight. You will delight in doing what Jesus wants you to do because he lives in you. He is shaping your heart to be like his. He doesn't just give us these commands. He shares his love with us. His love makes obedience a delight. Notice he says, you will abide in my love. Not you will try and you will try. You will. He's focused on the relationship. 
It's all about that loving relationship. He's saying, if you love me, your behavior will reflect that. Even when you sin, you will be grieved. Before my love entered your heart, you would feel shame. But there's difference between worldly shame and godly shame. And God's grace is transforming you. Not so that you are sinless, that's a fallacy, but that you, through your walk in love with Jesus, you sin less. John writes about this love in his book, 1 John 5. Listen, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Obedience. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you don't write anything else down, would you write this down? Obedience is the pathway to an intimate relationship with God. Just look at your life in the times where you disobeyed, where you practiced sin, and joy wasn't found. Look at your life when you walked in a manner worthy of the gospel you've been called to. Obedience is the pathway to intimacy with God. You see, Jesus obeyed. He modeled this for us. That's why he says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ shows us what a life in the vine looks like, and he exhorts us towards that life, a life that is in a loving relationship with him. He says, I am the true vine, exposing the false vine, remember? Just as it was the purpose of ancient Israel to be the light of the nations and set forth the glories and the joy of living in true relationship with God, the page has now been turned to a true relationship and the privilege to be in relationship with world so that we can with God so that we can be light to the world. I said this a few weeks ago, and I want to say it again. Our mission as a church in obedience to God, is not to transform the world. Our mission is to live as a transformed world, a community of faith whose lives have been transformed by the world and what we're learning today, by love, introduce the lost world to the transformer. The mark of obedience in a believer's life comes with an irresistible consequence, it brings joy. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is joy overflowing. This joy is not like happiness. This joy is not fleeting. This joy can't be robbed from you, from circumstances Happiness can. This joy is not superficial. This joy is deeply felt contentment. Jesus desires his people to experience this joy. And I want to remind you that this joy that he speaks of does not come from gratifying himself at the expense of others. It comes from sacrificing himself for the benefit of others. This is inexhaustible joy. Joy, listen as I close, is an unmistakable sign of a genuine disciple. Christians claim to have the spirit 
of Jesus in them, residing in them. Jesus created this joy. If you claim the creator of joy inside you and you're miserable, there's something wrong. Joy in Jesus It doesn't mean that everything is always honky-dory, but there's a joy from Jesus that is in you, and it comes from knowing and following and obeying him. Your life, my life, is ultimately marked by a confidence that Jesus is greater and more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. So... There must be a paradigm shift. There must be a theological paradigm shift. We tend to think joy and obedience are mutually exclusive. We, we in our nature think that we have to either choose misery and follow Jesus, which isn't true, or if we really want to find joy, we have to be free to do whatever we want, which is not true. Joy comes through obedience. If the life of Jesus flows through us, then our understanding, our paradigm of this world, and our purpose begins to change. Our affections and our allegiances begin to change. We start to desire what God made us for, to bear fruit, to find significance. We start to wish and dream for what matters for all eternity. Our goals start to align with Jesus calling on our life. We will deny ourselves. It is better to die. But for me to live is Christ, Paul says. To die is better our minds and hearts become transformed. And when we feel our weakness, and we will, we cry out to God for help, he empowers us. He empowers us to do what we cannot do by ourselves. Apart from him, we can do nothing. God's commands and our wants in life begin to line up. This is when the church, the bride of Christ, becomes an unstoppable force. Force, 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 force.